0: Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us again here today on the Edge. Brought to you by our good friends over at Keelguard. Your boat is too important an investment not to protect it with Keelguard Keel Protector. I'm Steve Brigman here in the Bass Edge studios with Aaron Martin. So, what's up with Mr. Martin today? All is
1: well, my friend, as we are ready to launch the next episode of 2012. First up, Mike Iconelli as he navigates us through fishing rivers. On deck is Phil Torres of BassTackleDepot.com, breaking down the hottest trends in the tackle business, along with baits that every angler should have. Then we head south to Louisiana and get a Red River perspective for the upcoming Bassmasters Classic with Mr. Joe Mitchell. But don't forget, Steve, it's your favorite part of the show, as we'll also name two lucky winners in the Ask the
0: Pros segment for submitting listener questions. Man, that's a lot of stuff, and I'm always looking forward to what Ike has to say, so let's just do it. Get her like that, boy, good job! I don't know of any other fort that offers the challenge that bass fishing does. That's full
2: contact fishing right there.
1: Fishing's going to be tough, but we'll catch one. It's a a good place. It's all about figuring it
3: out. What do you think of that, huh? Oh, yeah! God. Oh, did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw. That it. was awesome! Oh, oh, oh,
4: oh. Holy cow! You're listening to the Edge, everything bass fishing from the Bass Edge Studios, high above Table Rock Lake in the Missouri Ozarks.
0: It's normally a time of the year, I'd be asking you if you were tired of the cold, but man, it's just been crazy. Or at least it has been here in the Ozarks. We had not had much of a winter. Boy, that is for sure. Normally this
1: time of year, I'm all bundled up in a parka. And uh, last year, you look at the weather at least that we had or the winter that we had in the Midwest, uh, it was very downright bone-chilling. Of course, I was actually in Texas for most of that time, which was a good thing. But now then this year, we're having more of the South Texas winter and um, just sometimes it doesn't really make sense and it's always interesting i think steve to be able to look into that and see how that applies to bass fishing
0: well that's so true you know i mean it changes things i mean the water temperatures are really up there for this time of year and it makes me think of you in the diary that you keep on conditions this is the kind of thing where you don't look back and say necessarily and you can tell me if you use it in this way but I mean, you don't necessarily look back at say february 10th but you look at say when the water temperature was 52 or 54 degrees No, first off, though, let me say it's not lost on me that you keep referring to that
1: as a diary, like I'm (laughs) some you know teenage girl or something. But anyway, I'll I'll continue to refer to it as my as my journal. Um, But yes, very good point. the The fact of the matter is that the journal uh, essentially I can use that to go back and say, okay, what were the conditions if they were a certain water temperature? Well, based upon that water temperature, even though it may not be a date in February, maybe it's more a traditional March date of the area that I'm particularly fishing, I can still look at and say, okay, I was using this bait, this is the phase that the bass were in prior to the spawn, and really use that to put the pieces of the puzzle together much more quickly.
0: And of course, if you don't have a journal, we still got our standard things that happen. We still have seasonal patterns, and they're going to happen even in these times that change. You know, photo period doesn't change, bait growth doesn't change. Fish are going to spawn in the spring, moon phases are going to affect that, so uh, it makes bass fishing this great puzzle to put all of these factors together. It does, and I, I think that's part of the fun of it. The thing
1: that I always find amusing, and I know you share this feeling with me too, but as we travel around the country and we have conversations with you know the people that are in the know, the biologists, they always start their answer off, well, We think. So it just goes to show you that even though we are talking about all of these different things and the constants, that really there is still some interpretation that has to be applied by the angler himself.
0: And of course, this conversation, along with each week we talk to all these great anglers, and uh, sometimes I I worry that we make all this sound a little too complicated. Very good point. And I don't
1: mean to do that, Steve, because it is very important, I believe, for new anglers to really have the confidence because when you look at any angler out there that got their start in bass fishing or fishing in general a lot of their knowledge came by just trial and error of going out taking some information or a bit or a piece or being with somebody you know who was familiar on that body of water and really uh, expanding it from there so that's the beauty of fishing and, and in all reality you know, what do we do this for? To go out and to have fun.
0: Well, that's so true. And and I tease you about it. I'll let you be the mad professor and I'll go just sit in a quiet cove and use the old uh, blind hog method. I'll run into a fish eventually. And and, uh, that's what it's all about for me. Yeah.
1: And I like the
0: fact that on any given day that bass are responding to multiple baits,
1: multiple presentations in different areas. But you know what? Rather than sitting here listening to you and I banter, I see that Ike's on the phone. Let's go out and join him and and see what he
3: Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel guard, keel protectors.
4: Hey, Edge listeners, this is Terry Backsay Hi, I'm Jamie ciphers I'm Diddy Brower. This
0: is Michael Murphy.
5: Hi, this is Pam Bolton, and you're listening to The Edge.
0: We're fired up today to have one of the top, most popular anglers in professional bass fishing with us today, Mr. Mike Iaconelli. Welcome back to The Edge. Mike, how are you doing? Doing great. How are you? Well, pretty good. I understand you've been on a vacation. I hope you had a good one.
6: I did. You know, the vacations are very few and far between nowadays, so uh, it, it, it's nice to, to take some downtime with the family and, and get to spend a couple days turning the computer off and, and all that stuff. But, you know, it's funny, even on my vacation, I ended up doing a little bit of fishing, which is, you know, it's it's, it's why I do this. It's still my passion, you know. So even when I'm away from the tournament scene, I still love the fish, so you know.
0: You know, I was trying to picture what does Mike Icadelli do on vacation, and I I was torn between some tropical uh, fishing location and snowboarding. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> but uh, of course now, Mike, it's time for you to get back to work. You got the Bassmaster Classic right around the corner, and congratulations, by the way, for qualifying for. Was what, what this, twelve now?
6: Yeah, I think this is twelve. I well, I've lost count, you know, but it's uh, it's something I definitely don't take for granted. You know, making the class. I mean, it's, uh, since I was a little kid, it's something I've been dreaming about. And, um, you know, the first year through the Federation, I end up qualifying for the classic. And then my first year as a pro in '99, I made the classic. And I'll be honest with you, my second full year as a pro, this is going back to 2000, I was young and I was cocky and I was very confident. And I assumed way back when, you know, that making the classic would be an easy thing. And that next year, my sophomore year as a pro, I missed the classic. And, uh, I've been fortunate enough to make it every year since then, but I can tell you it really opened up my eyes, and it's a great thing when you make it. And ever since that year I didn't qualify, I'll never take it for granted. You know, it's it's a very difficult thing to do. You know, you're fishing against the best guys in the world. And just to get to that event is an accomplishment. So I'm pretty proud that I'll be there again this year.
0: Well, Mike, we're not going to ask you to give away any of your secrets here. But uh, since you are fishing down on the Red River uh, and fishing rivers, we thought we'd choose a reader question that involved fishing rivers. In the questions from Brian from North Liberty, Iowa, Brian said he heard Wolak and Ishman Road discuss fishing last week on a mystery lake and he lives in eastern iowa and he fishes the mississippi river a lot yeah. and he says as most fishermen know fishing a big river can be intimidating especially if you can't pre-fish he wants to know how you would approach a river like the mississippi if you were dropped in there on a tournament with no practice
6: that's a great question you know and and uh... we're, we're kind of putting that situation a lot in in our tour fishing you know we do get a, a limited practice but On a lot of these places, it's so big. And then you throw in the fact that it's a river system on top of that, and it can make it very confusing. But, you know, I do a lot, I do a handful of things. Um, It's kind of like a three-step process that I have. And the first part of it is is doing some research at home. So, you know, if you know the place you're going to, you could do some historical research, you could buy some maps. But the most important thing I could do at home is knowing what time of the year that I'm going to be at that river. And so really what that means is, is... Understanding seasonal pattern. And based on seasonal pattern, you know, whether it's the spring, the summer, the winter, or the fall, I have a pretty good idea of what kind of areas they're going to be using in the river. So, so that's the first part of it. You know, the next part of it is, is actually, you know, getting there and kind of, kind of what I call is fishing the moment, you know, and that's getting out there, dropping your trolling motor, and then using that stuff as a template, but ultimately you got to listen to the fish, you know, and, and get a bite, you know, and, and then take that bite, and use that to kind of build on the puzzle, and then the third part of that is just expanding on what that that is telling you. You know, expanding the pattern. And on river systems, the one thing I figured out over the years is it's very predictable as far as patterning the fish. So, you know, to, to put all that together, if I knew I was going to the Mississippi River in early June, you know, that's telling me it's it's a spawn, for you know, first part of the post spawn period. So I'm going to be thinking about the spawning areas, the backwaters, the flats. I'll get there. I'll drop my my trolling motor. I'll start fishing. I get that first bite. Let's say it's a frog bite under the mats, and it's a thick portion of mats. It's not thin. Then all of a sudden I start looking at the flats with mats where all the thick spots are at. That's kind of a quick answer to, to the process that I use, you know, on rivers or any new body of water that I fish. So I hope, I hope that answers the question.
1: Well, it absolutely does, Mike. And uh, I just want to know if I can have you on my speed dial to call you whenever I go to a new place to <laughs> we fish. We can work something. <laughs> yeah, out. exactly. The good thing is, Mike, for Brian having his question chosen uh, to be answered here on the air, he gets actually a $25 gift card to BassTackleDepot.com. So you just awarded somebody a, a nice present to be able to add to their tackle arsenal. And really, you know, kind of back to uh, what we were talking about, fishing rivers, which really ties right into what you had uh, stated concerning the Mississippi River. You know, we always have to consider current when talking about fishing rivers, but how much impact do you believe current has in fishing a lake? And really, how do you account for that when trying to break down a lake?
6: Yeah, uh, you know, current, current's important. I think there are times of the year when they want current, and there's times of the year when they don't want current. You know, so just, just to put it in real big generals, whether it's a river or a lake, the two times of the year when they don't want a lot of current washing past them would be the spawn. And would be the winter, you know, when, when they're spawning, they, they want to get into areas that are protected. They want to be able to build beds, and not have their eggs washed away. And so they're, they're trying to get out of the current, you know, heavy flush current areas. And then the same thing in the winter, you know, low metabolism, low water temperature, you know, they're, they're only feeding a couple times a week. They're not wanting to fight that current. So in the winter, I don't like those heavy current areas. But then, you know, the two times of the year you talk about the summertime and the fall, you know, there are two periods where they're feeding. You know, they're they're actively eating in the summer. Their metabolism's juiced up. So, in a river system or even a lake or a reservoir, I'm actively looking for current areas during the summer and fall because they're feeding hubs. They become feeding stations. You know, for for how those fish live. So. You know, I really think you need to pay attention to the time of the year and then use that as a basis to figure out whether you want current or not.
0: Of course, Mike, you've mentioned a few times we are sort of moving into that warmer time of season. I'd like to hear you discuss for our listeners just some of your strategies for finding fish when that water temperature first begins to head back up after its winter lows.
6: Yeah, that's, it's a tricky time of the year, you know, and that's, that's what I consider the early pre-spawn. And, you know, depending on what part of the country you're in, it happens from anywhere from February, you know, all the way through May, if you're way up here in, in my part of the country. And uh, it's a tricky time because really what they're doing is they're coming out of their winter spots and they're heading toward where they're eventually going to spawn. And, and so if you think of it from those terms, it makes it a little bit easier. And that's kind of what I try to do. And so if, if I break out a map, you know, I try to identify the areas where those fish have spent their, their winter or spent the coldest period of the year. and and they're generally the deepest, most vertical break areas in that section of the lake or river. And so I kind of put a little circle around those deep areas, and then I jump all the way ahead. I'll skip, and I'll look for the shallow flats. You know, I'll look on that map, and I'll try to identify the shallow spawning flats, the coves, the creeks, that shallower water that's protected. And I'll, I'll make a circle around that. And then now what I'm trying to do is figure out, where the, the stopping route's going to be between that deep area and that spawning flat. And that's really what I'm focusing in on in that early pre-spawn is those first couple stopping places. And, you know, to, to put it in a nutshell, they're, m- most of the time, they're what I call main points. And they're points that intersect the channel or the creek break heading between those two places. So, you know, gosh, on a topo map, it's like highways. You know, you can follow those, those lines, those contour lines, and whenever you see something jut out into and hit that contour line, hit that creek line, it could be a, a physical point, it could be an underwater point, it could be a dock, it could be a big tree, things like that. Those first intersecting spots, they're the magic places in the pre-spawn, and that's really what I try to focus on.
1: Well, Mike, we all know that the spawn is really this, you know, several dynamics that's going on. So let's break it down first and kind of concentrating in on the pre-spawn. What do you think are some of the most important things that our listeners need to keep in mind with regards to things like
4: bait size and presentation?
6: Yeah, well, I, I think as far as, as bait size, I'm a big believer in matching the hatch any time of the year. You know, so in the pre-spawn, like the post-spawn, summertime, winter, all those periods, it's important to understand what bait they have, what bait they're feeding on, the size of it, and try to match that forage. You know, generally in the pre-spawn, you know, you've got a lot of grown-up sized shad, you know, you you don't have those freshly spawned shad yet. So, you know, you're throwing generally bigger baits. And then again, you know, I try to focus in on baits that can cover a lot of water first until I connect with some fish. And so your reaction type baits and the pre-spawn are great. That's why you see, you know, guys talking about jerk baits and guys talking about vibration type baits in the pre-spawn as being great baits because they cover a lot of water that's great at imitating prevalent forage, and they trigger a reaction strike. And, you know, basically what I do is once I find a group of fish with those faster-moving baits, then I'll slow down, you know, because a lot of times, again, in the pre-spawn, they're stopping on those hub spots. And when you find one fish, odds are in the pre-spawn, a lot of times you're going to find a good load of them because they're all kind of staging up. In these same little areas. And, uh, and once I catch them with those reaction baits, I'll go back through and I'll slow down again and and pick off a few more.
0: Well, give us a list, uh, a short list of your favorites for pre-spawn fishing as far as baits go.
6: Yeah, I've got a lot. I'll give you just a a few general categories. You know, the first one we just talked about is a crankbait. Man, gosh, a crankbait is a great bait in the pre-spawn. You know, I'm a big fan of a, of a raffle of bait called a DT series. And, uh, The DT basically just stands for dives too. And, you know, with crankbait fishing, you're always wanting to make the crankbait hit off of something. It's it's all about deflection. It's all about changing direction of movement. And so whatever depth of water I'm fishing, I try to pick the DT series that that runs as deep or deeper than that depth. You know, so give an example, you know, uh, pre-spawn depth that I fish a lot is like, 12, 13 feet. They seem like they love that depth zone in that early pre-spawn. So I'll break out my box of DTs. We've got a DT6, we've got a DT10, we've got a 14 and a 16. So I'll grab that 14 because it puts me right in that zone. It's going to dive as deep or deeper than the bottom and it's going to let me deflect. So crankbait's one of my favorite. You know, second one I'd say is a slow roll spinnerbait. Man, what a, what a phenomenal bait in the early pre-spawn. You know, I, probably my favorite bait is the half ounce Mullocks, double willow, spinnerbait. Again, I try to pick a color that matches the forage. If it's shad, I'm using white with silver blades. If it's bluegill or perch, I'll use a chartreuse. Um, just really trying to mimic the forage. Uh, and then that, you know, they're they're kind of my my staple one two baits for cover and water. And then when I have to slow down, you know, I, I think probably number one. You get a lot of people agree with this. Is a jig, you know, a, a, just a good old jig is a great bait, especially when you found that key cover and you could slow down. And you know, nothing beats a three-eighths or a half-ounce black and blue jig. You know, I've I've got one that I designed for Berkeley called a Gripper jig. It's a it's a finesse football head style jig. It's perfect. You know, I'll I'll again kind of pick a color to match the forage, and then my last one in the pre-spawn, and this is going to surprise people, is 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 more of a finesse bait, but. When it's tough, and you do get tough days in the pre-spawn, you can really do some damage with this bait, and it's a shaky head, you know, and and again, I think people think of shaky head, they think of summertime, slow, tough fishing, but in the pre-spawn, it can be phenomenal too, and you know, a 316 ounce shaky head, give me a green pumpkin, Berkeley Havoc, bottom hopper worm, and I'm good to go. There are only four baits I need in the pre-spawn.
1: Well, Mikey, of your four baits that you named, I noticed that um, there was a, couple of them that varied in where you're presenting those in the water column. What determines if your bait is going to be more focused or, let's say, higher in the water column?
6: Yeah, you know, I think the one thing you always want to think about is you want to think about the activity level of the fish, and then you want to think about the forage. You know, so give an example of the activity level of the fish, you're going to have cloudy rainy days in the pre-spawn the barometer's dropping and those fish are feeding they're chasing they're feeding up you know you'll see an occasional splash you'll see shad jumping they're the kind of days where you, you want to fish baits that are moving that are that are more up on up on the top more horizontal in presentation so your spitter baits your jerk baits your vibration baits gosh all those baits where you can cover water they become real key but then there's days when They're feeding down, you know, when, when it's a cold front is passed, it's bluebird, they get real tight to the cover, they get hunkered down on the bottom. They're the days when your jig and your shaky head and your Texas rig plastics, they're going to be the days when they, when they really shine. Another thing is to think about the forage again, you know. Think about what you're imitating. You know, if you're imitating a shad, they spend most of their time from the middle of the water column up to the surface. But if you're imitating a crawfish, you know, if you get in a, in a lake, like Table Rock's a great example, you know, and you get in some of those creek arms, and gosh, they're gobbling crawfish in the pre-spawn, then you really want to cater a bait that matches that, matches the scooting action of a crayfish on the bottom. So, you know, a jig, or, you know, uh, a creature bait, you something that really imitates what that bait's doing, you know, naturally in the environment.
1: Well, are there certain water temperatures, you know, that you're looking for to really trigger certain or specific behaviors?
6: Well, you know, in the pre-spawn period, you know, it's there's two times a year when I'm really paying attention to my water temperature gauge. And it's pre-spawn and then the actual spawn. And that's, I always look at it, but in those two periods, I'm really focusing in on it. Water temperature can make a big difference in how you're going to fish and the activity level of the fish. So... You know, a lot of times in that pre-spawn period, I'll idle around a little bit and sometimes I'll get into areas and just, I want to check water temperatures. And obviously the higher the water temperature, the, the higher that activity level of fish, the lower the activity level of fish, the lower that water temperature. But you know, for, for me, any time in the pre-spawn that that water gets into the 50 degree mark, the low 50s to mid 50s, that's absolute prime pre-spawn fishing for me. So, you know, when it's still down there in the 40s, It's still more wintertime fishing. It's going to be tough, you know. And when it gets up near 60 degrees, those fish are thinking about spawning. But when they're on that prime pre-spawn bite where they're really eating before they set up shop, gosh, you can't beat that 50 to 55 degree water temperature. It's just perfect.
0: Well, you know, when we talked earlier that, you know, you're going into your 12th Bassmaster Classic, and I'd just like to know, well, you know, we know that part of the success of great athletes is that they're they're never totally satisfied, you know, always trying to improve their game. Well, what is a, what is a guy like Mike Iconelli? I mean, one of the handful of the best bass anglers in the world. I mean, what do you work on at this point in your career to improve your game?
6: That's a great question, you know and I think there's there's a couple parts to that. I mean, the, the first one is I think that early on I recognized that you can never know enough about the sport, you know, and it, it was like as a kid, you know, I'd learn a technique or a bait, and I thought, man, this is all I ever need to know. And then you'd go out and have a bad day using that one bait, and then it, it kind of inspires you to learn other baits and other techniques. And from, from when I was a kid to now, I still have that feeling where I want I want to stay on top of stuff. I want to learn new stuff. And I think if you look at the sport, if you look at the guys that are very consistent over the course of, say, 10 years, they're the guys that have been able to adjust and adapt and learn new techniques, and they're versatile anglers. So I, I try to achieve that every year. You know, uh, I never try to be one-dimensional. You know, I, I think, like, there are new techniques that come out, whether it was drop shotting, you know, back in 2000 for me, swim baiting, you know, in the mid-2000s, and now with the Alabama rig. You know, I don't think I don't want to ever become the kind of angler that foo-boos a technique, and that, that just says, you know what? I just finesse fish, and that's all I'm going to do. I don't believe that. I believe that the the equation to be a long-term successful angler is pretty much here's 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 what it is. It's you need to have a strength, right? You need to have one key thing that you love to do, but you have to add to that the ability to be versatile. And if you have a strength, and you add to that versatility. Then that equals a successful angler over a long period of time, and and that's what I always strive for every year. You know, so so the first part of that is I'm always trying to learn, trying to stay on top of the of uh, top of the edge. Uh, you know, the the second part is the competitive desires. You know, and I'm still very much a competitive person, and I want to win, and I go in every event trying to win. I, I've been like that since since I was a kid. And and I think you need that to be successful. You need to have that burning desire to win. You know, in saying that, you know, I've got on my mantle in my office, I've got two of the awards that I've dreamt about since I was little. I've got a classic trophy. I've got an AOI trophy. So when those things don't happen for me now, it's a little bit easier to swallow, you know, when I have a second place finish or a third place finish. And, you know, I can swallow those things a little bit easier. Uh, but in saying that, I still want to win. Every time I go out, that's all I want to do is try to win the tournament.
1: Well, and I think the day that that probably doesn't happen, you're going to probably put your uh, your fishing rod on the on the rack, but you know, that's one right. of the things Mike in your book and CD tutorial which I'm a big fan of is that we learned that you have been extremely focused on preparation dating all the way back, you know, to your federation and club days. Provide just, you know, really the absolutes of fishing preparation
4: for our
6: listeners. Yeah, you know, preparation for me is super important. And I think the one big fact that everybody can agree on is that, you know, preparation, the, the big thing that means, it means confidence when you get to the water. You know, when you get to the event, you get to the lake. When you're prepared, you're a more confident angler. So I've always believed that from day one. And, you know, what I figured out is, is – Different anglers have different ways of being prepared, and so i don 't know that there's a right answer i don 't know that you know what I do is the same for what Kevin Van Dam does or what you guys do, but the bottom line is when you 're prepared when you have a system of organization, uh, then you 're a more confident angler, and that makes you a better fisherman so you know for me it's it's a little bit you know it 's more detailed i mean I've really spent a lot of time organizing baits you know by categories, I spend a lot of time you know, organizing the boat so I know exactly where something's at, you know, labeling rods, putting the line sizes on the rods so when I grab a rod I know what's on there, change changing line, having fresh Berkeley line on there every tournament, uh the map preparation, the map study, you know, I create packets for every place I go. And in that packet I'm going to have physical maps, I'm going to have uh, photocopies of old tournament articles in there, I'm going to have notes. I mean, all those things help me become a better angler, you know, so... Uh you know, for all the listeners, I mean, you know, spend the time now, especially for me. Gosh, I'm up here in New Jersey. We're freezing our butts off up here. It's the perfect time of the year to really work on your tackle and prepare. And then when you finally
0: get to fishing season, you'll catch more fish. Wow, Mike, that's a a lot of great stuff. I can't tell you how much we appreciate you spending some time with us today. Before we let you go, do you have anything else you'd like to share with listeners?
6: I would just tell everybody, if they could, go to my website. You know, it's mikeicinelli.com. We've got a lot of great stuff on there. If they want to go on there and get tips and techniques, go on there, get information about our seminar program, which is the Bash University You go on there and get some new information about my new TV show called Gone Ike. So visit the website, and uh, I
0: appreciate being on the show, guys. Well, we sure appreciate having you, and uh, good luck in Louisiana, and thanks for being on the edge. Thanks, Mike. Thank you.
3: At Legend Boats, we have one agenda, to build the finest bass boat on the
0: water. It's our passion. Our hand-laid hulls and 0 tolerance stringer and transom system give you a smooth, dry ride, even in the rough stuff. The Alpha 211
3: with its massive fishing platform, The Alpha 199, fast and stable. And coming soon, the Alpha 191, a 19-footer with a style, attitude, and a price value
0: all its own. Legend boats, catch the wave, ride with a legend. That gun, that's that's a lot of information from a like. I think I'm going to have to listen to the podcast about a half a dozen times to take all that in. And... Even then I'll have to take notes. Yeah, I, I I don't question the
1: uh grain capacity up there, Steve, but no, that was you are exactly right. I can assure you that will be one I will go back and listen to multiple times. But you know, Steve, today we're we're really focusing and kind of trying to concentrate on the whole river theme you know with Mike and then we have Joe coming up I know that's an area that you've been almost kind of labeled as as the river rat
0: well that's true I you know I love rivers you know they to me they're sort of this artery of life and of course I, you know when I've got a few extra hours I'll go throw my canoe in and and drift and we're lucky here close to home to have that and uh, of course fishing rivers is is all about fishing current and uh, i think it's i think it's really important to at the very beginning sort of understand the difference in how a river fish feeds In a lake fish, you know, it's pretty much feeding by opportunity in a river. They depend on that current to to bring the food to them as opposed to, say, chasing a bait like they would in a lake. And if a big chunk of food comes washing down, they snag it because they don't know when it's going to be back again. And, of course, you know, living in a current, it takes calories to fight against a current. So I think in general, a a river fish per pound, I think, probably eats a little more. And they go by that same formula that's important, I think, to think about when you're fishing lake fish or any bass or any game fish, for that matter, is this sort of inexact formula of sort of calories gained versus calories expended. A fish is not going to expend more calories to catch something than it's going to gain from the bait itself. So there again fish in rivers are going to try to conserve calories and they do that by using river blocks. Of course in the world where I fish that 's mostly boulders, but also root wads and sandbars and that sort of thing and you 're going to find those fish in the least amount of current out of the current but as close to that current, which is the sort of the food conveyor belt uh, as it can be, in that way they sort of meet this uh, formula of. The most food for the least amount of energy expanded. And then I think the last thing I to always remember when you're fishing in a current and you know, on your presentation, just remember. You know, fish are looking upstream, and that can make a big difference in in how you present a bait in a current.
1: Very true. It's almost like supply and demand. You know, they they are only going to kind of the old business, economics 101, if you will. So all good stuff, and uh, that's certainly a great compliment to what Ike shared with us. Well, I see we are uh, getting ready to head out to talk some baits, trends in the tackle business, Uh, what's going on there, the latest and greatest things that are going to put uh, more jerks on the end of the year line no comment by you Mr. Brigman let's take a quick break and we will be right back to join Phil Torres of BassTackleDepot.com
3: Patented in 2000, perfected over years of testing and real world punishment. The Power Pole is the ultimate shallow water boat positioning tool. Swift. Power Pole deploys in seconds from anywhere in your boat. Virtually silent. Power Pole won't spook wary fish. Secure in strong currents or gusting winds in up to eight feet of water. Engineered to take it with a lifetime unconditional replacement guarantee on the spike. Power Pole. Swift. Silent. Secure. Visit PowerPole.com to find a dealer near you.
1: As talked about, this is typically the time of year that boat shows and tackle shows are well underway across the nation. Anglers are trying to ward off cabin fever by wandering the aisles of their favorite sports show in search of baits sure to put more tugs on the end of their line. In an effort to give you the inside edge, please welcome someone who studies and handles really more baits in a single day than I do all year. All the way from Oroville, California, the general manager of BassTackleDepot.com, Phil Torres. Welcome to the show, Phil. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, Phil.
5: How you doing, Steve? Well, Phil, as a
1: fellow businessman, you know, one of the things that I'm always interested in Is how the bait industry kind of responds to things like, you know, the recent downturn in our economy. Do the anglers really buy as much tackle even during the tough times?
5: Actually, they do. Uh, One thing that anglers do, just like anybody else does in a lower economy, they hold on to their dollar longer. They wait for sales, just like anybody else would do. They buy what they need more so than the hot new particular item of what they want. So from a manufacturer standpoint, sometimes it's really hard to introduce new product, the hot new latest craze. Uh, So what happens is manufacturers, what they'll do is they'll put a lot of emphasis behind what's tried and what's true and keep redeveloping on those tried and true products.
0: Well, Phil, uh, what's hot right now? What's leading sales out there?
5: Oh, man, it's It's probably the craziest thing is uh, the Pac-Man, or the other term is uh, the Alabama rig. That is probably by far the hottest bait right now. Uh, It's really, really crazy how Paul Elias does a big tournament, um, how this thing just absolutely took off. I mean, it, it's phenomenal,
0: really. Well, I know you're in a business of, of trends. Just share with me some of the more dramatic trends you've seen in your years uh, in this business. I actually
5: think one of the biggest trends that I've seen is the advent of technology and not from, you know, so much of our our fish finders and our electronics, but the ability for anglers to use a computer. Now, instead of them having to drive around uh, different tackle shops, you know, go miles, burning gas, they can sit at home at their convenience. They can see new products before they actually get to the shelves. I actually think that that is one of the largest tools that an angler has at their advantage right now.
1: Well, Phil, you previously alluded to the Pac-Man and the Alabama rig. Explain to listeners who possibly aren't familiar with it what it is, how to choose one, because certainly that's became its own uh, bait classification,
5: and maybe, you know, a little bit on how guys are fishing it. This is basically, some guys term um, them spreader rigs, umbrella rigs. Uh, Obviously, guys who fish a lot of coastal ocean waters, They've been using these type of baits for a long time. Some of your real old school striper fishermen have been using these type of baits. It's not really a lure, it's a device that you add lures to. And I think that uh, for anglers, you know, looking to purchase, you know, Pac-Man's Alabama rigs, uh, one of the things that they have to realize is, first of all, are they fishing shallow or deep? Are they fishing suspended fish? you know, where these fish are that they're fishing that they're trying to locate with it. Basically, I've seen two versions. One is going to be a weighted version. Five wires come out. In California, we've already adapted for a three-wire rig, which I'm hearing that's a lot of rules for other places across the country. So you've got a weighted rig, and then you've also got, which the original version is, an injected molded type of head. So you've got one for... Fishing deep cover, the injected molded, is non-weighted, so that's more for suspended fish, shallow fish, uh, fishing
0: trees, uh, weeds, brush tops, stuff like that. It seems to me you could call that like a, a platform for, like you say, uh, to run other lures or trailers, uh, you might say. Uh, what are some of the more popular trailers that, that anglers are ordering to use on the Alabama rig?
5: It's been a lot of, you know, three-, four-, to six-inch paddle tail type of lures. And paddle tails, it could be uh, something like a fat-bodied ky bait, or it could be a uh, reaction innovation skinny dipper or a zoom swimming fluke but something in that type of a profile we all remember the bastrix craze well now this is going to promote even more of those guys who really didn't get involved with the bastrix is adding them to trailers but it's a fish body almost sometimes even sassy shad type of body with that paddle tail that guys are adding to these to give it that bait fish swimming action.
1: Well, Phil, you know, shopping for the Alabama rig is certainly, obviously, creates its own challenges, but then you kind of bring in all the other options from what we just talked about concerning the trailers, but also the other bait classifications. I... I, don't know how else to put it, but it can be very overwhelming with all the choices that are out there. When an angler calls into you know the shop there at BassTackleDepot how do you help them narrow their purchases among all the different bait classes, brands, and colors?
5: What we do here is that we're really fortunate in where we are in Northern California. Most of our guys here uh, have been to the California Delta, which is two hours away from where we're located. We also have you know Clear Lake another type of fishery, huge fish, which is two hours away. We're 10 minutes from a deep, lowland impoundment that's, you know, at full pool is 900 feet, so we've got that type of structure. What we do, first of all, is we find out, you know, what part of the country are you from, what time of year either, you know, they're thinking of going, uh, when are they going to be on the water. And the main thing is, is we try to get them to classify color patterns, and options that have worked for them in the past. And then what we do is we help them with if there's something new that's out, that's in the realm of something that they're comfortable with what they've been using. And it usually starts with color, depth, uh, and then, time of
1: year, well, it sounds to me like you know certainly confidence, as we all know, plays a huge factor in in selecting baits because it's it 's kind of like trying on a you know a pair of clothes it's it 's got to feel good, feel right, but let 's assume that we 've got a brand new angler who really doesn 't have any basis to go or foundation to build off of, and also on a limited budget, what are your top five picks you know that you feel that kind of every angler? needs in their tackle box regardless of, of the part of the country that they're
5: from um I think everybody probably needs to if I had to pick five would be number one you really need to learn how to fish a plastic worm whether it's a four inch ringworm a six inch you know curl tail worm on up to you know your larger 10 11 inch style versions that would be number one uh, number two you need to learn how to fish the jig whether it's structure fishing in deep water or whether it's learning you know D. Thomas's technique of flipping. And then from there you can expand on punching, you know, what to do with that. Everybody needs to know how to fish a crankbait. Fishing a crankbait is an art much like plastic worm fishing. And with so many different variations of crankbaits, you need to have everything from the shallow to the deep diver versions and get confidence with those. And the other thing is uh, the spinnerbait. Binder baits, you've got to learn what it feels like, uh, what the difference is between good bearing swivels uh, as opposed to bearing swivels that don't spin as smoothly. And you'll find a good brand of something that you like. You'll play with color schemes. And um, the other one, really, I think that comes into play a lot is your finesse fishing with either the drop shot rig or your wacky jig head style of fishing. And I think if you just sat down and worked with those, you know, five techniques throughout the year, you're probably going to be a lot more
0: successful. You know, I've always, got an, I've always had an interest in, in, in older baits. Uh, I'm not going to say <laughs> why that happens to be. Yeah, Aaron, listen to him giggling over there. He's always teasing me, calling me the old man of the sea, especially when I pull out some old bait to throw that he's not familiar with. When I mentioned a Hawaiian wiggler, Aaron thought I was talking about a hula dancer. But... uh <laughs> Anyway, which of the older baits do you still sell a lot? I I imagine there's still a few Zara Spooks going through there.
5: You know, Zara Spook is a mainstay, that bait, you know, day in, day out. I mean, out here in California, we'll throw it, you know, January, February, March, back in December. uh, We use it as a search bait. The old Rebel Pop Bar, still very popular. We actually still sell a lot of Arbogast. Jitterbugs, which is something I still always use. You know, even baits that you don't think are really old, uh, the Bomber Fat-Free Shad, the Bomber Model A series of crankbaits, which all of a sudden gave us different depth ranges. You know, and basically, yeah, you can't find some really old color versions anymore. You could probably have some custom painted to some original formats. But, uh, you know, day in, day out, those kind of baits still uh, hold tried and true. You know, on that Hawaiian Wiggler, I mean, that was probably, uh, you know, one of the things where somebody thought about it, and, you know, it's almost the original Chatterbait.
1: Yeah, Steve, you know, you'll probably remember this, but for Phil's benefit, uh, we were up in Walker, Minnesota, and, you know, Steve was trying to talk me into something called the the Moss Boss, and, uh, you know, I think anything that gets put into the classification of of vintage, you know, is probably something good to to pull out of the tackle box every once in a while, because I've seen it too many times where, that could be the you know the game changer of your fishing trip. But unfortunately, Phil, we are out of time. I just want to thank you and, and BassTackleDepot.com again for sponsoring our listener questions on the edge. Before I, I let you get away, is there anything that you want to add?
5: Yeah, I'd just like to uh, thank you for the chance to uh, talk to all your anglers that are out there uh, listening and also to remind anybody listening that uh, they need to uh, send in their questions for a chance to win uh, depot.com gift certificate.
1: Well, Phil, thanks so much for your time. It was truly a wealth of information. I know that's going to help all of us kind of break down the tackle mental warfare that goes on every time we step into a tackle store. So we'll let you have your day back. Thanks so much uh, for being part of the edge. All right. Thank you. We'll see you Phil. All right, man. Under
3: the lily pads in a lake near you live bass, happy and free until one man with a huge resume and immeasurable experience building the finest rods in the world changed everything. Gary Dobbins offers three full lines of tournament-winning rods. The Champion Extreme, Champion, and Savvy Series. Dobbins Rods, when fishing is more than a hobby.
4: Hi, I'm Moses Mokawahi. I'm Sean Harnke. Hi, I'm Jared Littner. I'm Travis Ruley, and you're listening to Fast Edges, The Edge.
0: Well, I enjoyed Phil's comments. I guess I'm still trying to get past somebody that handles as many lures in a day as you handle in a year. And, of course, also, I'm always very pleased if there's a bait out there called the Alabama rig. Well, I'm sure you are. It's just uh, too bad that the SEC championship is not
1: directly tied to that. But you know what, Steve? You can never have too many baits, as you well know. And uh, there's, there's a lot of enjoyment that I get from going through uh, all of my tackle and just hopefully i don't wind up on that hoarding show at some point in time
0: yeah i'm, I'm glad we got a big old legend 211 because i think those <laughs> dadgum all that bait you have it sink my boat oh now 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 i don't have that many but uh
1: i do enjoy going through and, and trying to i just wish i had more time to actually be able to to use all of them and, and really do some of the experimenting because i think that's where you know having the open mind and willing to go out for a day and do nothing but spend time with a certain
0: bait classification those are sometimes often my best days well that's true you know you you never know i mean i think we talked earlier about uh adjusting to conditions and of course I just kid you I'm I'm, gl- I'm glad when I'm in that boat that, I, that I've got a, a veritable tackle shop with me but uh, I tell you what I enjoyed hearing Phil talk about and, and sharing with us that he sold so many of the old lures that I grew up with of course, of course the spook has never gone out of fashion but I mean you know things like the pop R and the jitterbug and, and that sort of thing and by the way that's a lure not a dance uh, I, I enjoyed hearing talk about the older lures
1: yeah i'm sure you do i think one of the disclaimers though that probably he forgot to throw out there and so i feel like i need to at least readdress it here is that vintage and old lures aren't just necessarily described by you know having rust on the hooks you know i've i've
0: peeked into your tackle box I got a lot of vintage I got a lot of vintage lures there at the house. But uh you know, when you, when you look back at these lures and, and of course you and I have had a lot of fun and I see you still hadn't gotten over the Moss boss incident of <laughs> Minnesota, but you know, really when you look at it, you know, and I brought up that Hawaiian wiggler just as a joke, kinda, of, but it but it was so interesting to hear him comment about that that's sort of uh Uh, the precursor to today's chatterbaits and you know when you look at all a lot of these old lures from the past a lot of things we use today are just sort of improvements on past concepts yeah not to get You know, too quirky here, I think certainly a a valid
1: point, but also look at, you know, just engineering in general, dating back to in the farming days. A lot of our basic, you know, farm implements and tractors and things like that came from just improvements that they constantly adapted, uh, you know, via engineering. And also, Steve, look at the new baits, such as the Alabama rig. You know, Phil pointed out this is something that's been around, probably a lot of us did not know this, in the salt water, in the striper fishing, that finally somebody just said, Hey, why wouldn't this work for largemouth?
0: Well that's true. You know, it, it it's very interesting to watch the evolution of baits and it's you know, I have trouble keeping up with all the new names and then I look at I look at, at some bait and I go, Well that's just a daggum souped up whatever you know but uh, it's very interesting I would love for you to to show you some of the stuff that I fished with you know just mention plastic worms you know the first plastic worms I ever fished with had a spinner in front of them
1: that is dating way back there I can't can't say I've ever thrown one but you know I'm not gonna sit here and argue with you that they don't work and perhaps I'll put that right up on the shelf with my my
0: moss boss lake sturgeon Ontario I'm pulling one of those black worms, you know, and it's got this silver little little thing. I was I guess I was sixteen, seventeen on a canoe trip in the boundary waters and had this uh little silver spinner and I'm just reeling it like a crankbait. I I've got no clue and six pound smallmouth. That's a big fish in Ontario. Big fish
1: in Ontario? That's a big fish in anywhere, (laughs) in any of the waters I I fish for. But you know what? I, uh, I think that's part of the fun of it, being able to reminisce talk about not only the the old baits also the new technology that's coming about let's take a quick break here because i want to make sure we've got enough time to get with joe mitchell down at the red river who's really going to break the waters down give us kind of a bird's eye view of what to expect and also maybe we can get some predictions out of it let's take this quick break and we'll be right back here on the edge
4: Now you can harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. Introducing Electronics 101. Whether a beginner or more advanced, leading electronics instructor Mike Webb shows you how to get the most out of any sonar unit. Common problems and frequently asked questions are covered in detail. Electronics 101 also includes bonus deep fishing tips from industry pros. Master any brand graph. Order your DVD by calling 888-390-8780 or online at BassEdge.com.
1: Considering the Bassmasters Classic is right around the corner, it's only fitting to bring in an expert from this year's side of the Classic, the Red River. He has more top ten finishes there than any other angler I know. Joining us live from Shreveport, Louisiana, please welcome Joe Mitchell. Welcome to the show, Joe.
0: Thanks, Aaron. Hey, Joe. How you doing, man? Doing
1: good. Well, Joe, you know, our friendship dates way back, and I I hate to even say how long ago, but, you know, when I first met you, I was amazed at really at your knowledge of the Red River at such a young age. But interestingly, you know, that familiarity did not really come solely from what I would call, you know, spending time on the water with a rod and reel in your
3: hand, did it? No, that's right. Um, You know, a a lot of it I
2: learned uh, from my dad. My dad, growing up, before the river was flooded, had hunted a lot of the backwaters the area farms and stuff around the river and he had become familiar you know with a lot of the farm ponds a lot of the creeks you know and knew a lot of the old trails and stuff you know and then after they flooded it you know he kind of had a good memory of where all the things were and then the other was right after i graduated high school we were marking timber uh working for a timber company we marked timber all through there you know so i learned a lot of the different types of terrain and stuff around there and you know, all
0: that become beneficial. Well, Joe, I know that uh, you and Aaron have, have fished down there a lot, but uh, for guys like me, I've never been down to the Red River and for listeners like me, can you just kinda give us a a, a breakdown of the fishery, sort of give us a makeup of the Red River?
2: Well, pool five is is one where that's where gonna where they're gonna launch out of. You know, it's gonna be uh just south of Shreveport. That pool there, you know, it's got a lock in a locking dam that's probably about 20 miles south or it's 15 to 20 miles south of the launch site and between the locking dam and the launch site you know where they flooded all the old timber and stuff pool five is mostly flooded timber like i was saying and it's got like a lot of lily pads it's got quite a bit of grass you know but pool four is more known for grass it's got lots more grass and less timber you know pool three has more straight steep dropping banks you know and west uh, grass and west timber, so it's pretty much, you know, how, how it lays out. Well,
1: Joe, with the multiple pools that you speak of and kind of really focusing in on pools three through five in your earlier answer, anglers are really dealing with several variables. You know, you've got moving water, uh, which is kind of on the main river. Then you have right. the, ba- the backwater pools, which essentially I kind of uh, divide that, or I guess picture that in my mind when I'm fishing down there. That those are really kind of flooded pastures. But then also you have current generated from the, the lock and dam system. You know that does influence those backwater pools. How that's right. how does an angler you know confidently approach all of these different variables when fishing on the Red River?
2: Well, water stage is going to be big. I would say that's going to be the biggest player in this tournament is how much rain we have between now and then and if that river is to to rise a lot, you start playing in a lot of the small backwaters, you know, the small areas and the tight places to get into and plus if you do have that high water then we're going to be looking at a lot of muddy water which is going to make, you know, the the, the lake, so to speak, ain't going to fish as, as large. You know, you'll be fewer areas with more boats in them, you know. and To me, it just seems like There'll be some places that that they'll be able to catch some fish in the muddy water, but I think a lot of the the anglers are going to go looking for that constant, you know, places that are going to stay clear and places that aren't going to have current, you know, just just trying to focus on something consistent instead of something that's prone to high and muddy water.
0: Joe, what stage uh, would you anticipate fish uh, being in for the Classic and maybe a few suggestions on how these guys are going to approach these fish during the Classic?
2: Well, I would say we're going to be right on that break. We'll be in pre-spawn to maybe early spawn. It's going to depend on them few nights right there prior to the Classic because we're going to be right on the threshold of, of the fish really moving up to spawn. And if that water temperature, you know, hits that magic mark, which would be 55 to 58 degrees, you know, we could be looking at a fest. I mean, it, it's going to be a deal to where fish are going to pull up on the shallower flats. And, and I'm really believing that that's the way we're going to be because, man, we've had a lot of warm nights here lately. Uh, water temperature's already up close to 50 degrees, and, you know, moving forward, I really believe that by the time they get here, it's we're going to be in the middle of this fall.
1: Well, Joe, my next question kind of is actually somewhat two-pronged because of what you mentioned earlier as far as muddy water versus, you know, the clear water and that constant variable that the angler's going to be looking for, but give us some bait selections, maybe your top three, you know, if you're going to be targeting the clear water versus the muddy water, and or, you know, are those going to be the same baits independent of, of what the water
2: clarity is? Well, I believe that if we get right on that threshold and we get to where we think you know, or you know, the anglers get to where they think these fish are gonna start to spawn right during the middle of the tournament, you know. I think what you're gonna have is you're gonna have these fish sitting on the edge of these creeks and pulling towards these flats that's got these lily pads, which means they have hard bottoms in it. And probably what I think we're gonna be looking at is a good chance of having warm nights, and you'll be looking at a good spinnerbait bite. Early in the morning, you know, fish kind of moving moving up into the flats and stuff and, and kind of cruising, I think you'll be seeing a good spinnerbait bite. You'll also have uh, anglers that are going to fish the edges of them creeks, you know, where maybe them big ones haven't quite pulled up onto the flat but are getting ready. You'll see a lot of crankbaits. And for the fish that are already going to be there ready to go, I, I believe you'll look at more of a jigs soft plastic, you know, I think it's going to take a a variety, you know, like a a guy that's got a good pattern on the spinnerbait early in the morning, and then he's got a good timber pattern on the hard bottoms, you know, after the sun gets up really high and it starts warming through the day.
0: Okay, Joe, I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out now, Uh, maybe make a prediction on which pool the Classical be one in, maybe why that'll be, and uh, maybe give us your estimations on... Uh, daily weights, and the winning weight?
2: Well, I figured you was going to put me on the spot on that. My personal opinion is I believe that Pool 5 will be the, the where it's won because it just seems like day in, day out, every tournament, there's always a 9 or 10-pounder that comes from Pool 5. There's more big fish caught up there, and I believe that that's going to make the difference in the tournament. Pool 4 is definitely one of the more consistent pools probably changes less from day to day and that consistent 18 to to 21 pound bag coming from there, you know, it will be strong. But in saying that, I do believe that it'll probably take between probably 61 and 64 pounds over a three day total to win it. I believe, you know, you're looking at a a 21 pound stringer a day should put you right in there to win it, you know, but that wild card is that 10 pounder that comes out of pool five. So, Kind of hard to say there.
1: Shifting gears here and and sticking along the river theme, but getting away from per se the Bassmasters Classic. Something I know you have experience on is obviously river fishing. And before we let you go, I just want to get your input on a listener question that we had previously presented to Mike Iaconelli, and it's basically it's from Brian out of North Liberty, Iowa. And what he wants to know is that he heard Dave Wollack and Ishman Monroe discussing, you know, fishing a mystery lake on the last episode of The Edge. He states that he lives in eastern Iowa and fishes on the Mississippi River a lot. And as most fishermen know, fishing a big river can be intimidating, especially if you can't pre-fish. How would you approach a river like the Mississippi if you were, let's say, dropped in there on a, on a tournament day with no practice?
2: Oh, man, my big thing would probably be maps, maps, and maps. You know, like you can get on, like, Google Earth and stuff and and going and and looking at aerial shots, you know, places that people may not run into on the water. You know, you'd be looking for small places, you know, hard to get into, hard to get to, take too much time to get to, that you might could just stumble up on, you know, looking on a map and and really say, you know... Maybe that spot's going to have some clear water. Maybe that spot's going to have some current. And looking down through there and looking at rock jetties or cuts in in the banks, you know, that would create current, you know, to where a big fish could pull up on, be a good ambush spot, you know. Probably something like that would be something I would go to looking for, you know. And and I guess you could look, too, for lily pads, you know, on aerial shots. And you look for structural tree lines. Uh, you can see creeks on them, you know that if if trees are lined up on the edge of a creek or something. Probably one of the one of the places I would start would definitely be maps,
0: though. Well, man, that Joe, that's uh, that's all good stuff. I I hate that we've uh, run out of time here. I was hoping we'd get a chance to talk a little football.
2: Oh man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, you bring up a sore subject there. I thought we were going to get through this interview without going down there. That real steep. <laughs> well, yeah, you know,
2: the Saints lost again Sunday. You know, so let's talk about
0: baseball or something. <laughs> that's yeah. I guess. Oh man, I know I hated that. What a crazy game that was. But uh, but no, I, we're kidding. I guess uh, a lot of our listeners know I'm an Alabama fan and you're a big Tiger fan. And yeah, that's and right. I want to congrat You know, congratulate both teams on Gracie. And, and Arkansas, too. How cool is it that three out of five of the top five uh, came out of the SEC West?
2: Man, that is cool. I mean, it just shows you that that, that conference is loaded. And, man, just to know that you got to go play, like if you're LSU, you got to go play Arkansas and Alabama every year. And man, you
0: know, they don't rebuild. They just reload, you know. That's right. That ain't flag football down there. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's uh, anyway, Anyway, Joe, uh, anything you'd like to add before we get away?
2: Nothing too much. Just uh, looking forward to a good Classic, and I think that uh, people are definitely going to want to come to this way, and and it's going to be a good one. It's going to be a shootout.
0: Well, it's uh, always a pleasure to have you, Joe. We hope you come back and see us real soon, be part of the Edge. And for the rest of you, don't go anywhere, because we're going to be right back here on the Edge.
1: Why did they consistently win? Why did they know about all the latest and greatest baits? BassTackleDepot.com, of course. BassTackleDepot.com is your headquarters for all your bass fishing needs. With over 100 different manufacturers in stock, including Dobbins Rods, Bassaholics Clothing, Boat Bling Cleaning Products, Black Dog, Pepper Baits, Gene LaRue, Jackalure Company, McCoy Line, not to mention a talented staff of hardcore anglers ready to assist your every need.
3: Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard Keel Protectors.
0: Well, Joe gave us some great information on uh, fishing the Red River. It's always good to hear from our good friends down there in Tiger Country. And uh, I know that, that probably brought back some memories from, for you, Aaron. You and him have uh, fished that river a lot together. I know you're a big fan of the Red River.
1: I absolutely am, you know, Steve. It, uh, not only with his friendship and just his knowledge of the Red River, but uh, specifically it's one of the very few places that ever in my life I've actually taken two boats to uh, actually fish a body of water one and was a, a aluminum John boat and then the other one was the normal bass rig just to make sure that I could gain access into some of those backwaters that the Red River is, is so well known for but we have our final I guess listener question that is going to be answered and presented Terry from Tampa wants to know Steve and I'm thankful that you are actually answering this question versus myself but fishing active beds for bass Terry wants to know, is it harming the beds and numbers of bass? If so, what is the solution?
0: Well, that's uh, that question hits home, Terry. That's, uh, you know, when I was, gosh, in my late 20s and early 30s, I would always, back in Texas, I would always schedule my vacation around the full moon in april so i could go to lake fork and fish those beds sight fish those beds you could literally catch four to six pound bass until your arms got tired but uh, after a few years of that you know you'd pull up to a bed you know it's a very crowded lake and and so many of these fish would have these white marks on them and then you'd see another fish dragging this big lizard behind it and another fish would be pulling fishing line behind him and just personally, I got to where I sort of lost my taste uh, for fishing on beds. But as far as are we harming these fish by fishing on these beds? Well, of course, I know that uh, there's people a lot smarter than me that can answer these questions. And I got in touch with a biologist from both Missouri and Texas, to put the and I put this question to them. And the bottom line with both of them was that, you know, when you're fishing on a bed, these small may, you know, it does interfere with uh, a little bit with uh, males guarding eggs and fry. But both of them confirmed that really fishing on beds is not something that has a measurable effect on the bass population. And, and if it was, they would... You know, they would regulate and they would have a season. In fact, here in Missouri, we do have some regulations that protect spawning smallmouth on some of our very fragile streams here. You know, closed seasons on those. So, uh, So I think that, you know, in general, no. And I think you have to keep in mind, too, that people fishing in spring... If they're not sight fishing on beds, they're prob- they're very likely catching fish that are spawning anyway, whether it's you know uh, sight fishing or or, or or hitting them in the head with a crankbait. So, uh, so I think uh, all in all, I think the consensus is among biologists that no, we're not. There's not a measurable damage to it. But having said that, Aaron, I like this conversation, and I'd like to see the tournament organizations address this i'm not saying don't have tournaments during during a spawning season but uh, i think it's a healthy conversation and i, I think it's something uh, we should be talking about could not agree more i think you know conservation
1: always uh for the sport of which we participate you know to, in order to be able to pass that on we have to be able to tackle these subjects and you can't shy away from something just because you know taboo or hey we might get chastised for The remarks or the the comments i think it certainly brings a lot of credibility that both of the biologists that you interviewed and i was really shocked i'll be honest with you steve i was expecting you know for there to be some sort of of data that would come back that yes that it is a measurable impact I think also your point concerning when anglers, you know, springtime fishing, a lot of the different species are heading towards the bank. That's when a lot of people, you know, really can go out and have numbers of success. I don't bed fish because I'm not good at it, for one thing, but also I can certainly tell you that I have caught fish, you know, spawning fish that were on beds, no doubt. Was I looking at them? Could I see them? No. But we know that just given the current conditions, when you're out there fishing, all anglers are going to catch spawning fish at some point in time.
0: You know, and one thing that biologists told me, I was a little surprised, is that, you know, they know that from tracking studies that they've released fish at weigh-ins, and these fish have traveled miles to get back to their beds. Now, I raised the question to him: well, I know, but didn't that, you know, left an unguarded bed for a while, and, uh, of course, you know, depletion of energy is an issue during bass spawning anyway, and he said, yes... It all, but then it, it all came back down to all the studies demonstrate that we're not creating a measurable problem. So I guess you, you bed fishermen are good to go out there.
1: Yeah, I guess that would be one way to take it. I, I, my
0: approach is still, you know, in leaving a
1: footprint anytime. You know, we launch a boat, we make a cast we have a water bottle that blows out of the boat there is a footprint that is left on nature and i think all of us need to ask ourselves the question independent of what state regulations fishery regulations are if it's legal and we have a problem with it well don't go out there and do it i mean because that ultimately is the voice behind what each of us are doing but anyway that's my thoughts i do want to mention and really just throw out a congratulations to Brian you know from North Liberty Iowa and also Terry from Tampa Out of all the questions submitted, theirs was actually chosen to be answered on the air and each of them will receive a $25 gift card to spend freely at BassTackleDepot.com. So congratulations to them and once again thanks uh, to our segment sponsor brought to you by BassTackleDepot.com. Steve, uh, one last thing. I believe you have a road trip that's coming up soon.
0: Uh, Yeah, for one of our interviews next week I'm going to go out and visit the old Clun Ranch Go out and visit with uh, Rick and Melissa Clun. It's always uh, fun to go out to their very beautiful Ozarks Ranch and listen to Rick's take on, on bass fishing. And, uh, you know, the last time I was out there for an interview, Melissa cooked up a pretty fine lunch. So we're going to have a really nice uh, interview from the Cluns next time.
1: Well, uh, I noticed it. I guess I didn't get that memo or invitation, so wish you the best of luck and be thinking of me when you're eating some of her fantastic gourmet cooking. But regardless, it's going to be a tremendous lineup for the next show. And unfortunately, Steve, hard to believe we have reached the end of our episode, certainly packed full this time of just tremendous information. want to throw out a thanks to all of the people that we interviewed, Ike, Joe Mitchell, Phil Torres, all good stuff but uh before we get out here i do have a couple of reminders be sure just want to remind everybody to send in your questions for the ask the pro segment via email to info at com. For your chance to have it answered on the air and a $25 gift card from BassTackleDepot.com to spend however you desire. Also, be sure to hook up with us on Facebook to stay on top of all things Bass Edge. We now have our new fan page up and running, able to uh, really include our growing number of friends And one of the things that I found out, you can never have too many friends. In the meantime, best of luck both on and off the water. For Steve Brigman, I am Aaron Martin, and thanks for listening to The Edge.
4: The Edge is presented by Kill Guard Kill Protector. For more information on Bass Edge or to shop at the Bass Edge online store, visit www.bassedge.com. And be sure to be with Steve Bridgman and Aaron Martin right here on another episode of The Edge. Brought to you in part by Legend Boats, BassTackleDepot.com, PowerPole, Dobbins Rods, Mercury Outboards, and Rapaholic.com.